All right. Am I on? There we go. Uh, good morning, family. It's so good to see all you guys. Uh, when we, this is a weird thing we do. I, I think about it every time I prepare for a sermon. We, you know, we get together on a Sunday morning, and we, we listen to one guy get up there and talk. And we think, why? He's going to talk for 45 minutes or 40 minutes or you know, 75 minutes or however long it takes. And it, it just looks bizarre. You know, it's just this, our, our default thinking is like, what is this? What's going on over here? And I just kind of want to affirm the privilege it is, the privilege it is not to sit and listen to a particular person, but for one particular brother to study and to sit under the word of God, <laughs> and then for us together to sit under the word of God, to, to hear the words of scripture read, to pray the prayers that we pray, and then to, by God's grace, be attentive to what God is speaking and what God might speak to us today. So uh, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege every time we get to open up the word together. Um, we have an idea of what entails greatness, right? Of what, you know, what is of utmost significance, you know, whether we think of great people or great events or great places, events and examples abound. And I was trying to think of something that, you know, that kind of brought this to the fore. And, and I, I thought of this, this interaction that Amber, my wife Amber and I had about uh, God, it was in May, and I only remember because I remember the date of the royal wedding. <laughs> um, so Amber and I tuck in the kids, we're sitting downstairs, and I'm reading a book, and Amber's on her phone. Uh, it doesn't always happen that way most of the time. I'm on my phone, and she's reading a book, being more responsible. But this time it was me, and I look over at her, and I was like, what are you looking at? And she, <laughs> she kind of looks up kind of sheepishly, and she's like, pictures? <laughs> and I was like, oh, pictures, okay, of what? And she's like, I don't remember the princess's name. Not, not, not Megan, but uh, the other one. Kate, Kate, Princess Kate. Yeah, it shows how much I know. So I'm like, oh, Princess Kate. Okay, cool. Why? She's like, oh, it's, it's a princess. She's so beautiful, and she wears all these things. And, and then we got to talking about the royal wedding. And I was informed about how many people got up. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really trying not to offend anybody. But how many people got up at like four in the morning to watch the royal wedding? And I was like what? And I was just flabbergasted. She's like, it's beautiful. And I was like, it's a wedding, babe. And, she, and, she, and, she, she, and she's just, and she's like, no, but it's a, it's a prince. And, and, you know, this prince is marrying this princess and there's this royal line and this incredible thing. And it is this huge, massive, significant event. I was like, babe, the guy was a scumball. The guy like flaunts himself around in Las Vegas. And he's just, you know, this party monster. And he finds this really cute actress and they want to get married. That's cool. You know, Tom Hardy and Elton John and Oprah didn't want to come to my wedding when we got married. You know, why not? What the heck? And so, uh, I, I repented later because I kind of I kind of pooped with the event so much. She was like, "You ruined it for me." Uh, so I, I'm awful. I'm terrible. Uh, but but all that to say, we have a we know what made the event great, right? We know what distinguished that wedding from, say, Amber and I's wedding. Why Tom Hardy didn't want to come to my wedding, which would have been awesome. Or Elton John. Elton John plays at my wedding. How cool would that have been? He wouldn't have accepted the invite. He wouldn't have had any idea who I am. I'm a person of less significance. I'm a person of less importance, right? We all have these notions that we carry with us when we think about the word great or what it means to be great, what it means to be significant in the world. Or we think we know what it means to be significant in the world. And then we come to our text today, and of all the things, all the, the topics that Jesus discusses where he kind of turns things on their head, the issue of greatness is arguably the most stark contrast. 
It's, it's so bizarre. The disciples, like our brother Brian mentioned this morning, the disciples come asking about greatness, and the answer that Jesus gives is completely counterintuitive. Think about it. There, there's, there's synonyms that we could use for greatness, right? You know, we could talk about significance or importance or, you know, a distinguished individual. But Jesus uses antonyms. <laughs> he uses the opposite of greatness to discuss what he sees as true greatness. Phrases like, like a child, small, little. Words like humility. So we're going to read this text today and see what our Lord has to say about this incredibly important topic to his people. I'm reading in Matthew 18. I'm going to be going through uh, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. For if, and if your hand causes you to sin, or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, even one. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of coming together to hear it and uh, to, to sit under it. Holy Spirit, uh, we ask that you would come. Uh, you are here, Lord. We welcome you. Uh, invade our lives. Invade our minds, Lord. I pray, sharpen us. Uh, shape us. Use your word to... Set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts that we might live more like him, look more like him, and be the salt and light that we truly are, Lord, to the watching world around us, Lord. Give us grace as we listen, as we sit here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just got three points from our reading. Uh, Point one, true greatness is humility. Point two, true greatness is sensible to and esteems others. And point three, true greatness pursues those that are wandering. 
So point one, true greatness is humility. So think about what's been going on in the previous passages. Peter's been told that he's going to be the rock upon which Christ will build his church. Three of the disciples have seen the true splendor of the Lord, right? Like Matthew preached so beautifully two weeks ago. They've been seen, they've had it assured to them that God is at work in a new way, in a final way, in this man, Jesus Christ. And all of the disciples have seen healings and exorcisms, and they've been told that if they have faith, even so small as a mustard seed, that nothing will be impossible for them. It's becoming clearer and clearer that you want to be on Jesus' side, that this Jesus is the real deal, and that what this Jesus is bringing, you want to be a part of. And you want to be a part of it in any way that you possibly can. This is the real thing. So if you stop to think about it, the question that the disciples ask, it seems a little bizarre. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But it's pretty natural, and if any of us in here were there at that time, and we were being honest, we probably would ask the same question. <laughs> because we all think this way. Okay? It's, it's, just, it's the default mode of the human heart to aspire toward wanting to be part of something great, and then not just to be a part of it, but to be a significant part of it, right? To be a significant part of something significant. Again, seeking this is the default mode of all of our hearts. And it's at this crucial juncture that Jesus takes the moment and instructs by taking a child from the crowd. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl. It just, it just says the, the, the noun is actually a neuter noun. We just don't even know. It's just like, it's a child. God, Jesus just reaches out. He brings a child, puts it among them, and he says something so startling, right? He doesn't even initially answer the disciples' question, right? He just makes the point that you actually can't even come into the kingdom of God unless you turn and become like this child. He says, forget greatness. You, you don't even need to think about categories of who's first and who's last and who's going to be in the middle and, well, I was close to first. He's like, that, that's, don't even think about that because if you don't turn from the way that you're thinking right now, you're not even going to become a part of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus ups the ante on the disciples' question by establishing the prereqs for entering the kingdom before he touches on greatness by clarifying that the one who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> now, it, at this point, there's, it's, it's a little confusing because we have to ask ourselves a question. What about a child is humble so that, that we're supposed to emulate? What is it about kids and their humble attitude or their humble demeanor that we're supposed to imitate? And most of us in this room have kids or you're sitting, you're probably sitting next to a kid. Um, like, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them in here. Um, they're not humble. <laughs> uh, my, God's been kind to give Amber and I eight kids. It's not that they're preposterously arrogant or anything like that. They're just not humble, right? They act selfish. They do things like when they turn to and they learn to use words, they lie to you about things. Do we, do we look at those things when they, when they sin and when they, they act, you know, selfish or whatever? Just, oh, they're just acting like adults. Like, no, that's just the adult in them. Uh, you know, no, I, I, just don't, I just don't. What is this? What do you mean, Jesus? What are you talking about? Imitate the humility of a child. And I think the important part is that realize that I don't think Jesus is so much you're talking about acquiring the attitude of humility that is inherent to a kid. But it's the status of a child. It's not becoming humble as much as it's putting yourself under in a way that's almost humiliating. 
It's adapting the status of humiliation. The, the, the verb that's used here, it's just, it just uh, the, the Greek word is tapenos. Now, when it's a noun, it's, yeah, be humble uh, or, or uh, acquire the attribute of humility. But when it's a verb, like it is here, humble yourself, it's most often used as submit yourself, bring yourself low, stop grasping for greater things. And I think probably the, the greatest uh, example of this that we see is in Philippians 2, verse 8, the Christ hymn. You don't, you don't have to turn there, but it just reads, of Jesus and being found in human form, he, again, Jesus humbled himself, it's the same Greek word, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus doesn't acquire a new attribute that he didn't have before he became human. It's not that Jesus is all of a sudden gaining this new attitude that, oh, well, Jesus is maybe a little arrogant or something like that before. No, I don't, that's not what's going on in the text. He was made low. He took the status of fallen humanity that he might save humanity. And I think that the similar thing is what Jesus is talking about here. Um, sorry, I lost my spot here. Uh, commentator R.T. France says, uh, the disciples are to accept the low social status which is symbolized by the child, who in an adult world has no self-determination and must submit to the will of adults who know best. That's hard. That's really tough. And it goes against the grain of what the disciples have been asking. Not only are they told there's no such thing as greatness, but when you are great, it's going to be because you've adopted a low status, the status of a servant. You're going to be confused with being weak and be, be, people are going to look at you and think that you're a doormat sometimes. And Jesus says, yeah. That's what it means to be great in my kingdom. You submit yourself. You humble yourself. Taking upon yourself the status of a child. And what's interesting about the rest of the discourse is Jesus just drops the language of greatness altogether. He doesn't even mention the, the word greatness for the rest of the text. And then he cements this whole concept of disciples being humble and being childlike by changing the verbiage. From this point on, he starts to refer to them as all who believe in me as little ones. He just calls them little ones. It's just, it, the word in Greek is just mikron, just tiny ones. And I don't think it means like size-wise, obviously. It just means insignificant ones, little ones, people who aren't of great stature, who aren't of great status. Which takes us to our next point, actually. True greatness is sensible to and esteems others. <clears throat> Think about the disciples sitting there being called little ones. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation being called little ones for the entirety of the remainder of this discourse. It seems just condescending, right? It would just be insulting. But I think that's part of the point. <laughs> you're not going to be insulted by being called a little one unless you think you're great. Unless you think you're significant, unless you think you're important, unless you have some, self of, some sense of self-importance that prevents you from being part, as Jesus just said, of the kingdom that God is bringing in, in Christ. It's almost as if God has said, okay, now that I've, Jesus has said, I keep intermixing, uh, <laughs> okay, now that I've sort of smashed your scheme and the paradigm that you were seeing in terms of greatness, let's take it down right now and see what this actually looks like on the ground. 
So from this point on, Jesus is actually going to start talking about what it looks like to be little in the community of the saints, in the community of the people who've adopted Jesus Christ as their Lord, who've given their allegiance to him. And what follows is this really, really serious section where Jesus deals with the, the human reality of stumbling in our faith. Um, there's this word that appears over and over. And uh, in the translation I just read uh, from the ESV and all, all the Bibles that are in the, underneath this, the chairs uh, uses temptation to sin or to sin. The, the word isn't sin. The word is scandalon. And the word entails sin, so it's not incorrect, but literally, what the word scandalon means is, is to cause to stumble. And, and it's literally the picture of a trigger of a trap. For you're trying to hunt an animal, and you put this thing, you set it up, and the animal trips on it, and the animal is entrapped because of what's been done to it. It doesn't necessarily mean I go and I deliberately do something to cause my brother or one of these followers of Jesus to sin. And that's really, really important and should be really, really sobering for us. I don't have to be, as a Christ follower, deliberately intending to make my brother or my sister sin in order to be doing what Jesus is talking about here. It can be a harsh exhortation, unduly harsh criticism. It can be discouraging words. It can be explicitly sinful actions. That comes in there too. It can be a lack of repentance where I just say, I've wronged you, but I just don't care and I'm not going to approach you to make things right. It can be, as we see later on in the text, uh, in the next sermon, a couple weeks from now, not extending forgiveness. That can be a stumbling block. Uh, Commentator uh, uh, Frederick Bruner translates uh, the word scandal on here, uh, hurting the faith. Hurting the faith of the little one. It's, it's taking the faith of the follower of Christ that's frail because we're human and doing things that cause it to implode. And Jesus looks on that and he has the harshest of terms for that. For the ones who embrace that, for the ones who don't watch over that. The consequences are dire. It's better, he says, to be cast into the outer depths of the sea with a massive stone tied around his or her neck than to suffer the consequences for harming the faith of those who belong to Jesus. Now, now the millstone that he's talking about, the word is literally just the heavy donkey. It just, it just, it's, it's, it's the donkey stone. And it's this, it's this you know, stone about yay big. It's a circular stone. And they had to attach it to a donkey that the donkey would then pull and then that would be used to crush grain. So it's this insane picture. It's so exaggerated. You know, it's better for a man to be taken out into the deepest parts of the ocean with one of these, you know, hundreds of pounds stone tied around his neck and be cast into that ocean. There's no way he's getting out of that, is the point. It's better for that to happen to him or her than that they would cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Those are thick dire, serious words. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus keeps pressing the point. And what Jesus does here next is, is really, it's really incredible. You, you would think that the next step would be, okay, so therefore, make sure you don't do certain things in front of people. Don't do things that are going to cause other people to stumble, right? Don't make them stumble in their faith. Don't hurt their faith by what you're doing. But instead, he pokes deeper into the heart of the disciple, and he says, don't do things that cause you to stumble. 
Don't do things that make you fall away. Don't do stupid things that are going to make your faith weak, that are going to harm your heart and your allegiance to Christ. I think this is incredible. In the life of Christ's community, we're to be so sensible to, to each other, so wrapped up in each other's lives, that our personal holiness, our pursuit of God, our pursuit of Christ is going to have direct effect on the people around us. The ways in which I act and I speak around my brothers and sisters in the faith is invariably going to have an effect on them, whether for good or for evil, whether by commission, the things that I do, or omission. I mean, just think about that. Whether, whether I'm, I'm engaging in gossip and I'm speaking in ways about people that, and slandering in ways that I shouldn't, or whether I'm in a group of people who are doing that and I don't say anything, that's affecting them is disintegrating the integrity of the community, whatever it might be, whatever situation you might be in. I think this is why Christ repeats what he's already spoken of earlier in chapter 5. It's almost verbatim, right? Cut off your arm if it causes you to sin. Gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. Before it was exposing the corruption that's innate to all of our hearts, the desires of our hearts, and here it's, and this plays out in the community. And this is how this plays out in the community. We're told here that no man is an island. No man, no woman is an island. And that the effects of personal corruption run really deep into the life of those who've been purchased by Christ's broken body and shed blood. You know, it's, there's, this, there's this common line. I think we, we all believe it. We believe in the church and we believe it in the world. Uh, as long as my decisions don't affect somebody directly, don't directly harm somebody, it, it's okay. Well, why does my, my sexual ethic, or why do my financial choices, or why do my choices for what I watch on TV, uh, or the way that I speak around other people, you know, it's, it's my choice, it's my freedom. Why do I have to be hindered by you, by other people around me? And Jesus' point is because it doesn't just affect you, because it does poison the well. It makes it so that people around you aren't going to thrive as much as they might thrive if you're putting in good water, <laughs> right? if you weren't poisoning the well with your attitude, with the, the, the practices that you're engaging in or the way that you're talking. In short, when we fight for our growth and grace, we also fight for that of the whole body. Your personal holiness, everybody in this room, our personal holiness and our fight to grow in the grace of God is a fight for everyone. It's a fight for our children, fathers at home. C- consider this. And I, I, just, I see this all over the place. I see it, I've seen it all the time. We, we feel like we can just slack in our personal devotions. We feel like we can just slack in our prayer. We feel like we can slack with how we teach the word at the table, with how we talk to our wives, wives, how we talk to our husbands. And then we wonder what's wrong. It surprises us and shocks us when we look and we're like, why is he behaving like that? Why is she acting out like that? And the answer here is very obvious. is because your pursuit of grace or your lack, the areas that we wane in our zeal to pursue God's grace and to grow in grace together is going to have an effect on everybody. And Jesus sees that and knows that. 
And this brings us to our final point, one which lifts our eyes now from the sphere of the horizontal relationships to the, the, the heart of the one who is commanding these things and who's speaking of these things. Because at the end of the day, you look at that kind of situation, you think, well, then who wins? <laughs> you know, if we're all on the same scale here, we're all little ones, we're all with each other, and we're all in this constant battle to not make each other stumble, and I'm fighting against my own things, and as I'm fighting against my own things, I'm causing a brother to stumble, and I'm having to repent to him, and then they do something over here. It just seems like this enormous mess, right? It's, it's, it, it gives you this, it's, it's daunting, it's overwhelming. What do you do at that point? Is there hope for a community to thrive like this? And again, the heart of the Father is where we're pointed to next. And that, uh, the last part, this last section, that true greatness pursues those who are wandering. The command given in verse 10, again, we read it, see to it that you not despise one of these little ones. The, the word for despise there, it just means like, don't, don't look down on them. Don't look down on even one of these little ones. And it's really easy to kind of go over that and just kind of glaze over the word even one. Even one of these little ones. Earlier in verses 5 and 6, Jesus refers to the importance of the one, however. The individual, the one person. And he's going to go on in the rest of this passage to talk about the same. uh, You know, in our heavily individualistic society, I think as Christians, we can kind of push back a lot on the importance of community, right? It's good, which is a great thing. We at the gathering talk a lot about what it means to be a body. I just talked about the fact that you can't, that no man is an island, that we do exist as a community, and we have to live as such. We have to be mindful of other people in that way. But there can be an unhealthy sort of extreme that we go to when you start thinking about community. And I think it's just as toxic as pure and uninhibited individualism. And I think it's just when you pit the good of the community against the good of the individual. And you start to say, it has to be here or it has to be there. That we're going to make decisions for the community that are good and we forget the individual. Or, you know, vice versa. We want to think so much about the person that we forget about the good of the community. And I think what God would have us see in this passage here is that they're both. That the good of the community is the good of the individual, even when it hurts. The good of the individual sometimes is extremely painful for the individual, but it's for his or her good. And the good of the community sometimes, when the community has to do hard things and press in in hard ways that it doesn't want to, that are uncomfortable, it's for the good of the community. It's for the flourishing of the community, for its growth and grace. I was thinking about this, and I, I just... <laughs> Try to think of examples of where this where this lands in our everyday life. And um, again, I mentioned earlier, you know, the Lord's given Amber and I eight kids. They're great. We love them to death. It's hard. It's hard sometimes. <laughs> you just you go and you're, you know, there's there's incredible blessings that follow it. But man, it's tough. There, there's times when it's just so tough. And one of, and I and I kid you not, one of the biggest struggles is just to make sure everybody is present and accounted for. When you go to Costco and you're like, okay, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, where's where's eight? You know, and or you know, or you go somewhere else. You go to the zoo and there's 
there's, it feels like 20,000 people. It feels like Woodstock. And, and you're just like, what? and there's people all over the place. You don't know what to do. And I'm like, okay, don't lose a child. If we leave here with all eight children, praise the Lord. We did it. We did it. It was a good trip. We made it. I don't care if we don't see the lion, whatever, you know, we have our kids. Um, so about, uh, about two years ago, uh, Amber was at a women's retreat. And uh, at the time, uh, Noah was a baby. So she went with, uh, so, so he went with her and Tears hadn't been born yet. So I had six of them. And I was like, oh, what do you do with six kids? Oh, I got a great idea. Let's go to the children's museum. And so we went to the children's museum. And it's like the zoo because there's, it feels like 10,000 children in the same room. And at a glance, they all look like they're mine. So I, so, so it's kind of like there's this amorphous blob of childrenhood somewhere, and I'm like, oh, they're in there somewhere. I'm sure they're safe. It's okay. And, and, but, but then you stop. Oh, no, wait. No. Okay, that's not my kill, and he's not either. Where are they? So it's, it's true. True story. Uh, so long story short, you know, we're there for about 10 minutes. I'm there with my kids, and uh, I get distracted by something for a minute. And I turn around, and I'm like, all right, let's, let's, we're all stamped. We're all ready to get inside. And we go, and I'm like, okay, Judah, Caleb, Sammy. And Nathan's gone. And I'm like, where's Nathan? And I, and I stop, and I'm looking around. And I, I turn around. He's nowhere nearby. I go to the bathrooms. I look inside the bathroom. He's nowhere in there. And then I go to the little area where you hang your coats. He's not there either. And then I go into the food court. He's not there either. I come back to the kids, and I, and I look at the kids, and I'm like, you know, we have six more, you know, it's, 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 it's tough, you know, it stinks that you lose, you win some, you lose some, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard, um, I know, we love Nana, he's great, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, when hard things like this happen, uh, we move on, it's okay. And we went through on our merry way through the Children's Museum, and it was great. Like, no, no, of course not. That, that would have been, that, you, you're like, that's sick. <laughs> no, I, my, my heart sank. My heart was in my feet. Like, I just, I just, I'm looking around, I'm like, I mean, every awful movie about kidnapping I've seen comes to my mind, and I'm just looking, thinking like, oh my gosh, like, where's my son? And that was the one question. I was like, where's my son? Where's my son? Where's my son? Where's my son? And I looked at each of my kids, and I looked, and I said, we're not going anywhere. We're not moving from the spot, and we're not separating until we find Nathan. And we walked around the place. We found him a few minutes later. I don't even remember where he was. We, we see him, and I, 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 I spanked him. <laughs> I took him back, and I was like, dude, you never do that again. And, um, and then I drew him close, and I kissed him, and I, and I hugged him, and I said, I love you so much. I'm so thankful you're okay. Um, that is the... As silly as it is, as funny as it is, that is the most minuscule, tiny example of this full and bright and just universal display of God's kindness that we see in verses 10 through 14 here. It says, you know, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them, even one has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Jesus says that we are not to look down, be condescending on any of these little ones, but especially, 
especially those that have wandered or those that are in the process of wandering away. And again, beloved, this, this runs so against the default mode of all of our hearts, right? And I, I mean, and it, it runs against the default mode of the world, but, but, but let, let's look here. Let's look here us, at us as Christians, okay? It is all of our default mode to want to hang with the strong, to want to take refuge in the health, the common good that's experienced by all the mature in our midst. We don't like the tension, right? We don't like the struggle. We don't like the fight. I, I don't like going to meet with the brother or the sister or the married couple or, or, or the whatever that's going on that, that are going through the same issue time and time again. I would way rather take refuge in my heart with somebody that's not going to push me, with someone who's not going to try my patience, with someone who's not going to be quite so troublesome, right? And I make kids cry. <laughs> But this is not to be so with Jesus' people. It's just not to be so. Again, he, ba- he doesn't bail on the 99 so as to just completely abandon them, but he leaves them to pursue the one. Just the one. We're to be people marked out for our desire to pursue the errant one. To give every possible means to bring them back into the fold or to just stop them before they leave the fold. To stop the, 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 the insanity, the, the blinding, insane effects of sin. The blinding, insane effects of the world. of uh, the, the, the schemes of the devil that, are, that want to draw and entice every single one of us to walk away from the faith. To walk away from each other. To walk away from Christ. To walk toward absolute and just absolute self-destruction. That's what, that's what the devil wants. That's what our flesh does by its nature. We all err toward entropy. And God says, don't let them walk that way. God says, pursue the wandering one. And that is why he said what he said before, right? Don't be those who sin by omission, by, by, by just letting them go off on their merry way. They'll be okay. And don't sit by commission, by, by chasing them into the fields of sin, as Doug Wilson says, but go out there with them. And you'll walk after them. And it hurts. It hurts because it's disappointing. It hurts because you see over and over again that you're going to get burnt. <laughs> I've been burnt. All y'all been burnt to some degree. We've all been burnt by relationships. In this community, we've been burnt by relationships. Does that mean we stop? No. No, it's what we're called to. It's what all of us are called to. And it's not just that we're called to it in the sense of the, 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 the hard relationships that are, again, with healthy people. We pursue those who are wandering, those who are on the edge of bailing on the faith altogether. Again, as Frederick Bruner in his commentary says, human thinking says, let it go, we have 99. But the father's thinking is, there were 100, where's my one? Where is my one? And it's in this context, beloved, that we find the good of the community matches the good of the individual. When corporately we acknowledge our shared brokenness. <laughs> I think that's why Jesus establishes from the get-go, there's no, there's no pecking order here in my kingdom. You're all little. You're all insignificant. You're all small. You're all children. And you don't want to be, trust me, you don't want to be anything else. (laughs) 
we own up to our shared brokenness and we pursue, hopefully bring back and fully restore or stop one from wandering away. And in that, brothers and sisters, we see just how absolutely gracious God is. Because at the end of the day, beloved, as we read earlier in Philippians 8, there's just one truly great one. That is it. There's one truly great one. And every ounce of maturity or joy in the Lord or whatever, whatever scriptural knowledge we might have, comfort and joy that we might have in our fellowship is sheer and unabated grace. It was given to us. Every single one of us, every moment of joy we might have in the fellowship of the Lord, every bit of love that drips from our hearts toward those who are outside the faith or inside the faith is a gift. It is not our default. It is not our nature. It is not, oh, well, I just kinda, I'm just kind of like that. I kind of love people uh, without you know, inhibition, and I'm kind of nice like that. No, 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 no. It is God's kindness that led us to repentance. It is God's kindness that draws us as children into his kingdom, and it is God's kindness that welcomes us as guests at his table and sons and daughters in his kingdom. And if we don't embrace that, we don't know what we're missing. We just don't know what we're missing. We can't deny our littleness, brothers and sisters, because in doing so, we cut ourselves off from the blessing of participation in God's kingdom work in the here and now. You don't want to be big. You don't want to be great. You don't want to be strong. And we dare not look down on or despise even one of our brothers and sisters, no matter how lost or how troubled or how troublesome <laughs> Uh, they may be. Because to do this is to despise the apple of God's eye. It's to look down on the apple of God's eye. And we ought not neglect this pursuit of the wandering one, of the difficult relationship, of the struggling one, for fear of burnout, of discouragement, of disappointment, or of being burnt. Because it's in this God-ordained pursuit that God meets us as the first, foremost, and only true reconciler, restorer. Think, think about that for a second, brothers and sisters. The cro- if, if the cross is the, is, the, is the sheerest, highest point of God's beauty and power and goodness and authority and dominion and love, then the highest point of anything that anybody has ever seen is the self-giving love of God to reconcile broken, sinful humanity to a good and righteous and holy God. And if that is the case, why would we want to be anywhere else than in the work of reconciliation? Why would we want to run from the weak brother and sister? Why would we want to run away from the wanderer? We have to remind ourselves. It's a gospel reminder every day. We pursue these relationships because it is there, yes, in the hardship, yes, in the tense moments, yes, in the awkward and and consistent and sometimes years-long struggles, sometimes decades-long struggles. But it is there that God has promised to meet us, to fill us, to build us, and to anoint us with the power and the joy and the love and the tears and the sorrow and the comfort to do the work that we have been given, which is to be his people, his ministries, ministers of reconciliation in this broken world. In conclusion, I just want to, just one last thing. <clears throat> I was, uh, in, my, in my example of Nathan, you know, I was dealing with a lost child, right, uh, at a children's museum, um, but I wasn't dealing with a wandering child. Right? Um, I wasn't dealing with someone who had intentionally strayed 
interjection of the goodness and lordship of God. Uh, I wasn't dealing with a friend who slowly and steadily rejected the Lord through you know, ongoing sin and rebellion or just candid, honest doubt. It's easy for me to laugh about my son and everything that happened you know, in retrospect. Um, but for those of you and for those of us um, who have wandering friends or children, parents, spouses, or neighbors, um, the pain can run real deep and it can abide for a really long time. Um, I just want you to know that. I, I, have, I have several friends. My, my dad's not a believer. We have, we have lots of friends who are on the verge of leaving. And in this church, we've experienced friends who've gone. And uh, as the text goes on to say, and I think Matthew will preach in a couple weeks here, there's a point that comes when the wandering goes so far that they are lost and they wander. But then Peter asks the question after that, well, what if he comes back and repents? And Jesus says, you forgive him. <laughs> you bring them back. And you pray and you cry out to me for their restoration. It's all about restoration. It's all about restoring what has been lost to Satan, sin, and death. So I'm going to pray really quick. <clears throat> and uh, just, just consider those who you know who, who are wandering, who are maybe just in a state of weakness or in the process of wandering, or those who've wandered for a very long time and you've lost hope. And you just said, it's not going to happen. Um, pray with me. I will, I will just give a moment of silence to pray for those people in particular, and then I'll pray um, for all of us in close. good heavenly father we can't thank you enough that you are the good shepherd that that thread runs all through scripture that you you are the one who leads us beside still waters that you are the one who pursues us that you are the only truly good gracious patience compassionate father the only good shepherd who leads us as we ought to be led as we need to be led and Father, we just pray, Lord, let all these prayers come to you, Lord, as a sweet offering, Lord, for the souls of those that we know who are wandering, Father. Lord, we're all small, we're all meek, we're all little, and we've all been brought together in gracious union with God the Father and Christ the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that we might be made a new people. We just pray that you would work in the lives of these dear souls that we've prayed for now and we pray for the remainder of our time that we would see you and seek you um, as we take of the elements and as we sing together. Um, through Christ we pray. Amen.